and I, what did I do here? It looks like I, um, I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. TikTok is one of the most massive surveillance programs ever, especially on America's young people. Not just the content you upload to TikTok, but all the data on your phone. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Charles Sequin Cook sitting with Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilacs. Today we talk to Jeffrey Kane about dystopian China and Andy McCarthy about January 6th. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast number 620. Why don't you join us at ricochet.com? Why don't you? Come on, what's stopping you? You can be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. If you just go there, take a look and say, where's this been all my life? It's been waiting for you. And it'll wait forever. No, it won't. No. Like now, today is the day to go there and check it out. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis, freshly back from Mexico, sitting in with uh, Charles C.W. And Rob Long, everybody, how was your Thanksgiving? Nobody cares, but I just have to say that it's kind of fun to be on Thanksgiving in, uh, in doing Thanksgiving in a Mexican resort because they know that there are Yanks there, so they're going to do their best. And their conception of pecan pie uh, has to be seen to believe. My favorite, I think, was just an object called pumpkin cake, which was nothing more than basic white cake with orange frosting, but they had gravy, which only had, a, I think, maybe a cup of sugar uh, in each three cups of gravy, and otherwise delicious. I hope you guys had an American-style one, and it was grand, and it left you all charged up for the uh, the holiday season, as we love to call it. You didn't put the gravy on the cake, though. <laughs> well, no, I could have. It's really more of a sauce. No, it was sweet enough so that I could have, but since I'm doing the keto thing, uh, I... I, I, I Denied myself a cake entirely. A wise man. Right. Well, I mean, I have to say, and I and I listen. I, I wish you all the. I, I'm glad you had a lovely Thanksgiving, James. But you went to a foreign country. And now you're complaining about the Thanksgiving meal that they served. All right. Yes, thankful. because I'm an American. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. All right. They just simply can't do it right here, can they? Oh, it's so horrible. The turkey is so greedy. No, I no no. Of course not. I don't. I, I don't hold it against them in the least bit. That would be chauvinistic to the extreme in the true sense of the word. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see. You do a uh, Dia de los Muertos spread, but separate. Oh, I can imagine there's lots of chorizo <laughs> involved there. You know, I'm sorry if I'm slinging that Spanish lingo, but after five days in the country, I really feel like a native. Uh, so, yes. So here we are. Uh, we're now in that interregnum between the, the important holidays. What's the news? What's the thing? Is it the RNC chairman fight you guys are absolutely just jazzed and all a twitch about? Is it the freight rail strike, which we seem to have averted? Uh, or is it perhaps the uh, the student loan forgiveness plan gets another blow, another shot in the nose? Or is it the fact that uh, the former president of the United States uh, had a dinner and uh, we we learned that his staff isn't good at vetting people? That's the charitable in way of looking at it, isn't it? That's certainly one way of looking at it. But as I've said, <laughs> when that's well, look, I've said this to people who said he didn't know who Fuentes was. Okay, but this isn't a problem that seems to befall others. 
I don't wake up in the morning and read that. Oh, once again, a white supremacist had dinner with Greg Abbott mm -hmm. or DeSantis or Brian Kemp. So there is really not much of an excuse, irrespective of whether or not he knew who Nick Fuentes was. And he knew who Kanye was and he knew what Kanye had been saying. And so, no. It, it came and went in, 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 uh, in quick fashion, it seemed. It was interesting. Um, I would have thought almost the fact that the, the means, maybe I just missed exactly all the foo for all that was made of it, but it's, it, it seemed as if there wasn't a lot of dwelling upon the fact in the mainstream media, because they seem to regard Trump as, as, as not particularly relevant to the next cycle. Or did I just miss something? Cause I was, no, I think you got it the wrong way around. I think you missed something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, I, I think what Trump is discovering is that, um, that, or what he, what unfortunately he, he is discovering belatedly, if you're Trump, is that he, he can be he can. It only works if he's the only Trump in the room. It, 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 everything's a china shop, and Trump is a bull, right? That's how he works. Um, I mean, he got to the White House that way, so it's not like that's not that's not an ineffective strategy. It's not much of a strategy, but it's not ineffective. He got to the White House. If he's in, if if there's another bull in the china shop, and he becomes the china shop. And people like Trump have to be very, very careful about who they associate with because they need to be the only person there who's the outlier. Otherwise, it just looks like a chaotic mess and they look weak. It's a good point, um, but, Rob, but Rob, I have to ask, how do bulls keep getting into China shops? Well, yeah, so voters vote them I, in, I, of course. You, you would, you um, would, because they let them in or because there's just some sort of exchange program, but the number of bulls in China shops, right. keeping them out would seem to be job number one if you're selling China. Right, but the problem is that Trump is is not. So, so he, he, actually, Kanye West is a much better, a younger, more nimble, more energetic bull in the China shop. So, you know, Trump needs to be sitting, having dinner with the most boring people he could possibly find. That is his, that's, that's how you cast yourself as the star in the show. Um, and he just, um, I mean, he's old and he forgot that. And so, you know, among other, other problems, he's, he's uh, ancient. In the RNC fight to come then, are, are we going to see Trump, Trump friendly candidates uh, ascend or is that going to be a mark against them? What do you think, Charles? Well, it's an interesting one, this, because on, on the one hand, you have figures who have clearly made it because of their association with Trump, who are likely to prevail. For example, Elise Stefanik is a Trump creation. But Kevin McCarthy is simultaneously someone who Trump has pushed and who has been friendly to Trump in return and who has become this byword for establishment. So you've got both things happening at once all of a sudden. You have the rebels of the 2013-14 era Republican infighting, the House freedom types, saying, no, we don't want Kevin McCarthy. But then you also have the guy who supplanted those figures as the gadfly, Donald Trump, having elevated McCarthy at every stage and not from what I can see, being at war with him. So I find it quite difficult to discern who is who in this fight. I mean, back in the day, it was easy. If you remember the shutdown fight from 2013, on the one hand, you had people who said, either the shutdown is not going to work because quite obviously Barack Obama is not going to repeal his signature achievement. And they were correct. 
or who said, well, we don't mind the idea of trying to force his hand, but we think it might hurt us next year in the midterms. And on the other hand, you had people who said, look at these GOPE establishment sellouts. They'll never fight. They'll never stand up. And people sorted quite neatly into two different groups. There was the Ted Cruzites on one hand, then there right. was the John Boehnerites on the other hand. And they were mostly consistent in their approach to politics or ideology. Now, I haven't got a clue. Elise Stefanik is certainly Trumpy, but she's not very conservative if you look at her voting record. Kevin McCarthy is a Trumpy establishment type. I think in the long run, this actually makes it much more difficult for Trump to uh, command any sort of right. lead within the party because the whole enterprise now has become in co-aid. And I was not kidding the day after the election when I said Trump is now the Republican establishment and we need some insurgents. That's what happens over time. Mm. I'm not being <laughs> right. coy. <laughs> no, you're right. He is the establishment. And the problem with becoming the establishment is that you end up ultimately becoming incomprehensible and open to challenges. And so I don't really know what we're seeing in the Republican internal fights at the moment because it doesn't have any of the same force or consistency that it had in 2015-16 when Trump first arrived on the scene. I'm yeah, I don't think that's, that's very true. Also, look, the way you do get political power, no matter who you are, um, is that you, you help other candidates win. That's how you do it, especially when you're out and you're running for president. That's what people who are running for president do. They fly around the country and they make stump speeches and they collect um, favors from people by, by, by performing and getting votes for them and raising money for them. That's why a very unpopular vice president of the United States won a victory in 68 and 72. That's what Nixon did. Um, it was smart. That's what they all do. Smart. Um, that that has had the 2022 is of ma many things you can interpret many ways, but one way you, you you can't ignore is that the Trump brand was a killer in the ballot box. So the one thing he needs to do to um, help uh, to to help himself is to help others, and he can't, can't seem to do that. In fact, he's making a big deal about how he's not going to go to Georgia to help um, Herschel Walker win his race, which he probably won't. So. <laughs> It's a very unusual situation where you have a presidential candidate bragging that he's not going to help a, an important senatorial candidate win um, because he knows he's toxic. So it's it's a hard it's a hard. I don't know how to needle. I really don't. James, what is your view? <laughs> um, my view is that I am absolutely completely indifferent to who gets the chairmanship. I absolutely am, except the fact that Mike Lindell apparently is uh, is casting about for somebody to notice him. And, you know, I've <laughs> I'm, here in Minnesota, I, I feel I feel bad for Mike Lindell. I think he's made an awful lot of stupid mistakes, just absolutely boneheaded things that drove that may drive his company off the face of the earth. I don't know. I have no idea whether or not there are that many people who watch conservative television and need a pillow again to keep him afloat. But I just feel bad for him because he had this great story of coming up from absolute nothing and horrible addiction and the rest of it and building this company and the rest. Of it. And so I can't see him moving to the rnc and and pushing it in a popular and productive direction let's put it that way i just wish he would stay home and sell pillows and dog beds now i think he's making dog beds and that's great that's what he does they're fine pillows let's just leave it at that you know that would my be hope his... james is mm -hmm. that he has over his recent business successes developed enough of a 
cushion for himself <laughs> if it so, will so, go so, south. So to speak. Exactly. I'll leave. I'll leave. I, 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 right. Okay. Right. I had the octopus for supper. It sucked. I get it. Very, very funny. I love the droll humor. It's Thank so you. British. <laughs> so British and understand it. But, you know, you know, if Mike did something like that, and uh, it would probably be an act of charity, I'm sure, because he could make more money staring where he is than going to the RNC. And speaking of charity, of or course. Or maybe he doesn't even, maybe he doesn't give a sheet. Oh, Lord. It should be forever to come up with that one, by the way. It, and you're, of course, in the comic that, writing business, which is why it sprung so naturally and quickly to your, yeah. to your lips. That high-quality writer's room stuff there. I can see why you were feared in the writer's room, Rob. Exactly. Anyway, when I was mentioning that uh, charity, and which brings me to, which is a, a you know sort of transitional device that usually Rob would have tr- seen and ruined, but he ruined it for a completely different reason. <laughs> but he still are, ruined it. I get, I get credit for ruining it. You do. We are sponsored today, as we love to be sponsored, by Giving Ventures Podcast from Donors Trust. That's right, one podcast sponsoring another. Donors Trust is your principal charitable giving partner. Does it seem to you like a lot of charities are shifting left? Well, you're not crazy. They are. A report from The Economist showed American philanthropy is going woke and funding liberal causes more and more and more. So if charitable giving is important to you and you want to match your giving to your values, then you need to add the Giving Ventures podcast to your playlist. What is it? Well, Giving Ventures helps donors like you discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights nonprofit efforts that are making America more free and prosperous. Recent episodes highlight free market groups fighting homelessness, black conservatives' effort to take the ideas of liberty to new audiences, groups challenging the ESG movement, and so much more. The show is a product of our friends at Donors Trust. Now, you've heard us talk about Donors Trust before. It's the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust can help you have a real impact on your giving. And the Giving Ventures podcast will give you a taste of how Donors Trust can be a partner in helping you have that real impact. Grow your giving the smart way. Listen to Giving Ventures from Donors Trust. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. That's right. DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. And you can catch up on all the latest episodes and sign up for new episode reminders. Or just search Giving Ventures to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can even find it in the Ricochet podcast feed. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey Kane. He's a journalist, technologist, and author of The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. You can find his work at jeffreykane.net. Thanks for joining us in the podcast today, Jeffrey. I was watching this morning a fire that was taking place. Uh, Some locals in China had decided to burn down the quarantine center in their neighborhood. They didn't like it. Uh, We've been watching the protests. We've been watching these, as you note in the book title, dystopian images of the people pushing back at these white-clad men with poles. And I think, oh, those poor people who are protesting, because there's probably a, a bevy of cameras that are locking in on all of their faces and running their features and filing them away and docking their social credit score and the rest of it. Stuff that we used to take for granted in sci-fi we now just assume china has and is china doing uh give us a little give us a uh an overview of how good their police state is and what its weaknesses may be as they deal with another round of unrest well china has spent the last 10 years perfecting its police state and one could argue that it's the most sophisticated surveillance state in the world 
as you mentioned, James, it is the stuff of science fiction. When I was there, it reminded me of Minority Report, the Tom Cruise film and the Philip K. Dick novel, uh, because there, there were people I were interviewing who were being charged with pre-crimes who had literally not done anything wrong, but an artificial intelligence system known as Skynet, like Terminator stuff, <laughs> uh, was, was figuring out that they might commit some kind of act of terrorism in the future simply because they're Muslim and they pray, so they were being hauled off to concentration camps. Now I'm talking about the Uyghurs in the western part of the country. I had, I had spent a lot of time among Uyghur and Uyghurs in, in China and refugees overseas, and these stories were, were absolutely prevalent. I mean, I couldn't find anyone who didn't have some major story of, of being hauled away to a camp or a fam family member being taken away, so much that this has become the largest internment of an ethnic minority since the Holocaust. I mean, it's 1.8 million people, a tenth of the minority population in this particular region of China, and it's really terrifying stuff. So that's what I was covering when I was most recently there. That's the subject of my book. And since I've written the book, I've been watching these COVID lockdowns, the recent protests, and what this signifies is that this perfect surveillance state that China has had years and years to perfect with the help of American companies, I might add, um, is now spreading across the country and being used to target just pe regular people, students, workers, so forth, who just want to go out and, and, and make a claim for democracy, who want change, but they can't have it because there's a surveillance system watching them 24-7. Well, first of all, congratulations for saying Philip K. Dick. Most people just say Minority Report and do not credit the great crazy author. Uh, but if it's, if, if it's called Skynet, I mean, over here we can buy a meal replacement food called so Soylent, literally, and they're calling it Skynet. It's a little too high. I mean, they're not even pretending anymore. But when you say American companies, tell people exactly who's been helping them. We know that Google helped with a great firewall. That uh, is it, Cisco, who's been helping them uh, perfect a few things. I mean, they've got their own technology. There's a, there's a company I was just reading about the other day that is deeply embedded here as well as there in their surveillance and their cameras and their network and the rest of it. But it's appalling to learn that American companies have done this. Didn't American companies not know exactly who they were getting in bed with? With and what this would be used for. Oh, American companies knew exactly what they were what they were up to. Um, this, this all started about 20 years ago. This has been an ongoing situation. One of the major companies that first started helping China build some of the surveillance state was Microsoft, which had set up um, Microsoft Research Asia. It's 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 a major uh, artificial intelligence research laboratory. And what China, uh, what Microsoft had done was it trained. Uh, many of the key players who went on as alumni after leaving Microsoft to to, to found the startups, to you know, found the billionaire uh, unicorns that were that were that were being used to build the surveillance state. So we're talking about artificial intelligence companies, uh, facial recognition, voice recognition, just the whole gamut of. Uh, of, of just, you know, every technology you can imagine that the Chinese Communist Party can put its hands on and use to surveil its people 24-7. Um, so Microsoft is only one example. I mean, to my knowledge, Microsoft has never, um, you know, publicly challenged or criticized the, the governance of the Chinese Communist Party. I think that they're quite complacent and maintain a strong presence there. Another one um, that we've seen just today is Apple. So, you know, on Fox News, there was just a a report um, just, I believe, a few hours ago um, that showed a Fox News journalist in, at Capitol Hill, you know, chasing down Tim Cook when he's going to a hearing, asking him, so what's your stance on 
you know, on, on Apple fiddling with the App Store to, you know, help the Chinese Communist Party to try to block protesters from having too much access to each other. Um, you know, what's your stance on the, the, the protests in China? And the reason Tim Cook is being targeted for this line of questioning is because in the past, he has um, pretty much only said great things about China and the, and, and the government of China. Um, there are all kinds of, of Chinese state media reports that you can find in Chinese but haven't been translated into English that uh, allegedly show him saying that, you know, he, he praises the, the party and he praises China. You know, this is a great place, but he never once mentions the human rights situations, the protests for democracy, and the fact that Apple has been implicated for working with suppliers that have been found to use Uyghur uh, and minority forced labor, so essentially slave labor. Now, um, it, it's been reported that Apple has cut ties with a lot of those companies. That's been reported in numerous press outlets. Right. Apple itself has been very quiet about that particular topic. Hey, uh, Jeffrey, it's Rob Long in New York. Thanks for joining us. So I, I guess my question is, it's separate from the manufacturing problem, which is they, they've been dealing with for 20 years. Um, I'm old. I'm older than you. I can clearly see when, when um, sort of the web, new media, these kinds of com communication devices were invented. One of the arguments that the proponents made was that this is could, can only bring freedom because a distributed communication network cannot be controlled. Um, and, you know, and all of the terrible things that we see now, you know, this crazy stuff happening on Twitter or wherever, or Facebook, all that stuff, that is a direct, that's really kind of a direct result of this kind of distributed system. Um, you know, good with the bad. Uh, and yet, right, it takes one watershed moment, either, or, or one or two, right? Uh, uh, in, in Iran, it was the death of a, of a young woman in custody. And in China, it's this, um, you know, ridiculous, this absurd zero COVID policy, which is utterly impossible, which people should recognize now is utterly impossible. Um, but they have no way, except they do in Iran, and no way of actually communicating with each other, right? So this distributed network, which is supposed to bring freedom to the world, isn't. So my question is, is it doomed or is it just, is it just a one more way that people fighting for freedom, uh, one more um, challenge they need to overcome technologically? That's actually better, right? Easier. I mean, are they in a, they're in a better shape now because they need to code their way or uh, kind of work their get a workaround around WeChat or workaround around AirDrop than that one guy was in Tiananmen Square all those years ago, standing in front of a tank. He had no chance. But these young Chinese people have a chance, right? They do have a chance. These protests are unprecedented in many ways. Um, I, I think the. One of the most interesting things happening here is that a lot of these young uh, Chinese protesters, they have VPNs, they they have access to mm -hmm. foreign apps. They're not completely subject to, to the Chinese Communist Party and its demands. They're sophisticated, um, educated. A lot of them have been overseas and they, they know what's going on. Uh, but um, I think what's what's also interesting right now is that the stakes are much higher. Um, it, we've never seen protests in China under this level of repression. I mean, even Tiananmen Square, that was happening at a time of, of liberalization and relaxation when people thought that China was going to emerge, you know, as a power that would, you know, wasn't going to be this one-party state forever. Obviously, that turned out wrong. But under those circumstances, that's when Tiananmen Square happened. In this case, it was extreme repression. It was 24-7 uh, lockdowns. You couldn't even right. go 
get groceries. If you sat on your balcony in Shanghai, a government drone would come by and, and get your face uh, data, your facial data, and then you know they send you a fine just because you're sitting outside having a cigarette, or having a beer, or something. Um, like th these are truly repressive actions by the Chinese government, and it's not just these lockdowns, but it's it's been the past decade of just this this um this 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 uh, extreme repression that's been growing because right. of President Xi Jinping. Um, so so here's the big lesson that we're taking away taking away from this. Like yes, go back to the days of you know Steve Jobs starting Apple in Silicon Valley, and there was promise that we're going to create a distributed network um, connected by all these terminals, these PCs, and, and later smartphones that are going to allow people to rebel and do what they want. But this technology is really only as good as the people who control it. Um, you know, if we're in a modern republic such as you know, the U.S. or Germany or somewhere, and uh, you know we have checks and balances against government power, we we have the idea of, of liberty and freedom. People will push right. against government power. You know, that's going to be good for the technology. But in China, the Chinese Communist Party has written laws that allow it to do effectively whatever it wants. But you know, all right. So, but for for all, all my sort of China. Uh, his, historian China hands. They always say that they don't. They don't all, but many of them say the same thing, which is you know, look, China has a massive, chaotic nervous breakdown about every eighty-five years, maybe every sixty-five years, um, and boy, are they do. Uh, is this the beginning of it, or is this just the overture? I think that. Um... You know, or do you or do you reject the premise? No, no. Actually, I agree with the premise. Every um, you know, seventy to eighty years, there's a major upheaval in China. There's a either, a, a, you know, a new government, a new system that's set up, um, and usually, and very often, as in the, in the most recent one, when the Communist Party took power, it was through extreme violence and purges and you know executions. Um, the past uh, 80 years of Chinese Communist Party rule have been, you know, we, we say that they've helped build the country and take people out of poverty on a massive scale, but we forget that right before that, uh, it was disastrous. I mean, you know, millions of people died in, in the purges and the Cultural Revolution and famine and, you know, Mao Zedong. It was a terrible, terrible um, regime for most of its history. Uh, you know, I think that this signifies that, yeah, there are changes happening because people are not afraid to go out on the streets and just tell Xi Jinping this is, um, you know, we want something new. We want democracy. There, what's different now is that they're openly advocating for democracy across the country in major cities, as right. opposed to before when it would be only in Hong Kong or you know limited protests in certain places. I wonder what the federal government can do. If you go back fifty years, Richard Nixon thought that he would improve China and the world by opening up trade. This conceit persisted through the Clinton administration, through the George W. Bush administration, through Obama's administration. There's an argument now that actually, rather than the world making China better, China's made the world worse. You see this in sports, for example, where we were going to send basketball over there and it would make the Chinese more American. In fact, it's made basketball more Chinese, unfortunately. The companies you mentioned, Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, these are American companies. Can we, should we stop them from engaging in commerce in China, especially commerce that has anything to do with either maintaining China's Great Wall system, because the internet does not work there as it does here, or in any way that could be used by them, as we did recently with microchips? 
Well, I think that we're already doing plenty of that. Um, we made a lot of progress since the Trump administration, which started a, a huge number of these sanctions. And actually, I was involved in writing a good number of these sanctions. Um, I, I used to be uh, working at, at one of the congressional offices involved in this. Uh, we have done a lot, but we haven't done enough. Here is the problem of great significance. It is that so the free market, the open and liberal market, it only functions when all the players have agreed to the open and liberal uh, rules. That is, you know, a, a system of courts, of contract enforcement, of rule of law. And we now have erected a, a deeply flawed global system through these last 30 years of globalization um, in which there are a handful of extremely bad actors, uh, China among them, um, who take advantage of liberal governments and, and their freedoms. Uh, and then there are liberal governments who are required by, you know, by their own rule of law to exceed to, um, you know, what these bad governments want. Um, and it's a flawed system. Um, it, I think it, ex it has exposed a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the thinking that you just explained, um, you know, back in the 1990s and at the end of the Cold War that, if, if we simply send basketball players and rock music, the world will become like America. But that's um, that's not how it works because nations and peoples, they have their own histories, they have their own systems, and the people in power aren't simply going to change their mind because they got a chance to play some basketball with Dennis Rodman. I mean, they're, they're more sophisticated than that. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that there needs to be um, a, a significant decoupling more than what has already happened. Um, I think that, you know, this doesn't just apply to slave labor, but simply the fact that Chinese companies and also U.S. companies operating in China are required right. to submit to Chinese law, which, uh, which by the way, requires uh, entities in China and people in China to partake in intelligence operations upon request to hand over data. Uh, this is something that, you know, like we, we, can, we can't change the Chinese system, but we can get our companies away from them. One of the companies that's uh, got its hooks into American culture here, of course, is TikTok. Tom Cotton tweeted out the other day that if you have TikTok in your phone, you should remove it. You should wipe your phone. You should sell your phone. You should move away from your house. You should have it raised and salt the earth. And he's seemingly suggesting that TikTok is not just this thing on your phone. It actually injected something right down into your firmware that you got to get rid of it. Uh, I can't stand the cultural impact of TikTok and the way it has changed the way people behave on the Internet, the way they act, the way they talk. So, but is there something else there we should be worried about? We're all happy when people started paying attention to Chinese cameras, you know, telecommunications companies, the idea that the Chinese government would have the opportunity to embed into these systems all sorts of spyware is, of course, ludicrous. Of course, they would. They'd be stupid if they weren't. They're not stupid. TikTok, of course, is not a direct product of the China, you know, the Red Army, but ByteDance is connected like everything else is connected. Is it absurd to say that we should ban it or that we should uh, or, or is it is, is it is it something that actually we got to be looking at? Because, you know, who knows? I think that uh, it's not absurd to say that that it should be banned. Um, I think that the most realistic and pragmatic solution is that TikTok should be force sold, uh, so a forced sale to an American company. Um, so currently the one that the Biden administration is talking about is potentially Oracle, uh, Oracle, mm -hmm. an American company, um, 
one of the big challenges there, though, is that Oracle also has deep ties in China and markets uh, technology directly to the Ministry of Public Security, which is the body that has been implicated in a lot of these surveillance schemes. They're also heavily sanctioned by the U.S. government. Um, so, you know, it's not even clear if Oracle, with its connections, will be able to keep that, you know, that data separate, you know, here in America. Well, what, what, is, what is this data, though? I mean, I just don't understand. That's why I thought what, what Senator Cotton said somebody I sort of admire, but I thought it was just sound dumb to me. What's this data? I mean, and, and if you're going to sell, uh, give up your phone and buy a new phone, that phone's going to be made in China, probably. So I, I'm not quite sure what this, what the, the fear of that TikTok seems to me to be um, kind of silly. What What's the data they're taking from my phone that Facebook, Amazon... Twitter is not also to every app isn't always already taking. So the data itself is low quality data. We're talking about dance videos and cat videos and people twerking. Right. No, I'm on TikTok. I know. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I enjoy yeah. it actually. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fun app. I've used it before. Um, you know, don't blame people for enjoying it. Um, the problem is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party can orchestrate mis- uh, can orchestrate operations um, that would use that kind of data to to uh, to dance videos. Play. Like what what data? Uh, well, I mean, there are military officials and there are government officials. One of the biggest concerns now, South Dakota just uh, issued an executive order banning uh, government officials from using it in their work. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, um, so here's the thing. TikTok is one of the biggest repositories of facial recognition data. They have your face. They have your voice. Um, they have your movements. They have where you're going. They also have your keystrokes. You're going around. But they have the users. They have the, that for the user, the, for, for the people on the screen. But the, the, the vast number of people do not make TikToks. They watch TikToks. It's the same, you know, 90, 10, 99, 1. Wow. And the... Works for the whole... But by dance, if you look at the way that app is coded, it can track pretty much everything you do. It tracks what you're scrolling, where mm-hmm. you're clicking, what times you're on it, what your IP mm-hmm. address is, what your geolocation is at various points. This actually gives them a remarkable ability to track your movements and build up profiles, which is pretty useful to a foreign adversary and which whatever problems we might have in the U.S. is not available to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram because it's illegal. Isn't it illegal through on on the app uh, in iOS? Doesn't the app, app make that illegal for them? Make what illegal for them? That, that level of tracking. I mean, Apple tracks, but that level of tracking, isn't that illegal for, for uh, on iOS? Or I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm not asking, I mean, I'm asking legitimately, I don't know. So, so that level of tracking, it is used by TikTok, uh, and it's used by ByteDance, and that's been well documented. So a number of independent researchers have found... And they're alone in that, you're saying? No, they're not alone in that, but the problem is that, uh, so they operate in China. There are TikTok employees in China who are required by law, if requested, to hand that over to the Communist Party, whereas Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so, you know, the Google and so forth, are they do not operate in China. They're um, they're banned in China. So the, the risk of that is not there. When you're dealing with Facebook, if there's an issue with your data uh, here in the U.S., you can challenge them in court. You can you know appeal to the free press. You can do a lot to push back against Facebook. But TikTok uh, and ByteDance, they operate in secrecy in China. And so there's no way of having any, any form of recourse if your data is being handled. Yeah, the best way of thinking about government. this, Rob, is that in the United States, for all of her flaws, and let's say I'm not a fan, Elizabeth Warren's problem with Facebook is that it's collecting too much data on you and she wishes it wouldn't. Whereas in China, the Chinese Communist Party's problem with TikTok is that it's not giving them enough information about its users. <laughs> okay.
Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we want to have you back because there's so many more questions. Um, I hope the next time that we talk to you, we're not saying, well, we've moved 15% closer to a surveillance state. Exactly. What did we miss? What did we, what, what was the thing that should have told us that this was getting worse? Uh, but perhaps we won't. Perhaps we'll be lucky enough and evade the Chinese fate. Thanks for joining us on the show today. And everybody, go to his site, which would be Jeffrey Kane. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. C-A-I-N dot net and pick up the perfect police state, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, guys. I hate to interrupt here, but since we're talking about Internet privacy, I should. I know that a lot of people just feel, eh, my information's out there. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, you, you should do something, and that is keep the information from getting out there in the first place. I use a VPN for this site and for that site and the rest because, frankly, I may be doing something that I, it's not illegal, it's not wrong, it's not immoral. I just don't want that piece of data going into that bucket, and then they think that I'm this and the rest of it. No, no, no. Using the Internet without Express VPN. Express VPN, that's like taking a call on a train or a bus or a speaker for everybody to hear. You don't know who has access to your most private, sensitive information. So don't be that person, okay? Here's why I use ExpressVPN. Internet service providers know every single website you visit. And in the U.S., they can legally sell that information to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet so people cannot peep on your Internet online activity. Just fire up the app and click one button. Works on phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. No wonder it's rated number one by Business Insider and The Verge. So that's what I use it for. And part of it, it's great. You can set up little networks for friends and guests and the rest of it so that they come over. They can just pop that one button and they're secure as well. And maybe they like the idea of being secure and become ExpressVPN customers themselves. All I know is everybody knows you need a VPN. And everybody knows that Express's VPN is the best. Secure your online activity with expressvpn.com slash ricochet now and get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free. That's expressvpn.com slash ricochet. Expressvpn.com slash ricochet. And we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we bring to you our old friend, Annie McCarthy, senior fellow of the National Review Institute, contributing editor there as well, served as assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. He successfully prosecuted one of the few seditious conspiracy cases brought by the DOJ. The charge has been in the news since January 6th. What happened on January 6th? Oh, right. So we wanted to bring in an expert. Andy, good to talk to you again. What happened January 6th? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to, <laughs> maybe I'll Google it. But uh, anyway, so what have we've got convictions. Five of five and uh, two convictions on a big charge. Tell us how you view this and whether or not. Uh, well, just give us your opinion on the on the cases so far. Well, I think the main charge in the Oath Keepers case should have been obstruction of a congressional proceeding because that's clearly what happened, and they were all convicted of that. Everybody across the board. They, uh, the Justice Department, wants to take something that was terrible and make it even worse. So what they decided to do was invoke seditious conspiracy. It's interesting they haven't invoked insurrection, which is also a federal crime. Uh, but seditious conspiracy, probably because it's got a 20-year sentence, uh, so it's more serious. Um, and it, the charging language, the word seditious conspiracy is interesting. It's been on the book since 1862. 
Uh, I did a case on it against jihadists in the 1990s who blew up the World Trade Center and plotted to bomb other New York City landmarks. Uh, an interesting thing about the statute is that the word sedition does not appear in it. I remember when we wanted to use it in the 90s, that what got people all whipped up at the uh, Clinton, uh, Janet Reno Justice Department was the word sedition, which sounded like the Alien and Sedition Acts, which meant that was something we shouldn't go anywhere near. And of course, uh, if you look at the charging language of the statute rather than the heading of the statute, what it makes it a crime to do is conspire to wage war against the United States or to oppose the authority of the government by force. Force is the uh, gravamen of the statute. If there's not an agreement to use force against the government, uh, then uh, there's no crime. So they want to frame the Capitol riot, not as a riot, but as a broader war against the United States. And therefore to you know frame uh, Trump supporters and Republicans more broadly. I think this is this is kind of tailed off over time, but this was certainly uh, the rhetoric at the beginning to label those people not just as uh, you know as cranks who uh, got out of control on January sixth and and did what they did, but also that you know they're part of a broader project in time and space to make war on the country. And the problem with it is. We've never in the history of the United States, going back to 1862, when the statute was first put on the books, basically to attack or to to uh, address Confederate sympathizers in Union states. But we've never had a case where people who were charged could plausibly say, not only was I not making war against the government, I was acting at the behest of the head of the government, um, which is the problem with this case. So. By framing it this way, the Justice Department had to comically minimize Trump's participation in January 6th. So it's 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 interesting. If you take the five minute walk from the Capitol to the courthouse in Washington, D.C., if you're in the Capitol, if you watch the January 6th committee hearings, what you find is Trump obsession. Trump is like the center of everything. He's the root of all evil. He causes everything to happen. Uh, and then you take the five minute walk to the courthouse and you go into the Oath Keepers trial. He's not an unindicted co-conspirator. They basically don't mention him at all. Uh, at most, the Justice Department wants you to understand that he's a pretext. That is, he is the reason or the, the rationalization uh, that these people who are attached to this loose knit group called the Oath Keepers, uh, he's the pretext that they used uh, for carrying out an attack on the government that they were planning for years to do anyway. And I think the bottom line is what the jury found was what the defense lawyers argued, which was... Yes, what happened January 6th was terrible and reprehensible, but it was not the product of a plan or a long, elaborate, drawn-out scheme, much less a plot to make war against the United States. Hey, Andy, it's Rob Long. Thanks for joining us. Um, can I just uh, can I ask just uh, can you can you give me some moral guidance here? <laughs> moral? Yeah, I got I no, got a moral. I question usually for you. don't get asked for I, I that, know. but I guess you're, you're I'm surprising you. It's the holidays. It's Advent, Andy. You got to you gotta help me out. Your alternative is Charlie, so I understand why you come <laughs> yeah, to me. I got, I got what I got. Um, uh, 
I, as you know, I'm not, I've never been, was not a Trump supporter, not a Trump fan. And that's <laughs> certainly cost ricochet. Wait a minute. A hold, certain hold amount on. of Wait <laughs> popularity. I know. But here, I just say it's, it's my, but I mean, I, I, um, should I, why should I, do, I don't, should I care more about this? I, cause I don't. Am I, am I just not being vigilant? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, I think the thing is, there's two competing uh well i don't i'm tempted to say two competing realities but there's obviously there's only one reality there's but we're in a situation where we saw january 6th as it happened right right um and it's not that we didn't care about it most people were revolted by it but because we saw it and we saw the uh the stop the steal stuff that led up to it I think most sensible people in the country made up their mind what right. they thought about it based on their own observation. And then what we've had in competition with that is a two-year project by mainly Democrats, but let's broaden it to say, you know, people who are not just anti-Trump, but mm-hmm. I think obsessed with Trump, to see it in a different way from how we experienced it. And the fact is they just don't have the evidence that would make you see it differently than you observed and experienced it in, well, in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, look, if you stole a computer or the thing, or you went to Nancy or the big podium or whatever it is you you took, um, and you know you were you should be arrested and you should get punished for that. That seems like that's fair, right? Right. Um, and if you, you committed violence, then you should be well, that's fine, right? That's that's all that I'm I'm in favor of cracking down on that. But sort of the larger philosophical, the the country was imperiled. I just I just I mean I kind of I just have to stifle a yawn. It's like oh please really, right. uh, come on. Well, we weren't it was a, it wasn't it was going a, to really, they weren't going to do anything. I mean, even right. if they came into the as well of the Senate, like it wasn't like they, they suddenly they'd become senators. It's not capture the flag. Yeah, I think this is what what rubs people the wrong way about it. I know it rubs me the wrong way about it. I don't know why it's not enough for me to condemn a riot at the seat of government. Yeah. Why I have to then buy onto the narrative that democracy was <laughs> hanging by a thread. Such when a in snooze. fact yeah. this was this was the most half-baked thing <laughs> no. in the history of things. Yeah. <laughs> and like to have Liz Cheney get up there and talk about Trump's multifaceted plot. Yeah. I mean, you know, please. What you know, what we heard was they, you know, they have this crazy meeting in the White House. I think it was like December. I don't know, third or fourth week in December, where you know you have the whole cast of characters there, um, and you know they want to seize the voting machines and all the stuff. And the White House Counsel guys are there saying that uh, you know Sidney Powell is crazy and General Flynn is crazy, and they're all crazy. And they they almost come to blows at one point. This goes on for about five hours, and then. Trump leaves, and by two o'clock in the morning, he's tweeting, "Everybody, come to Washington, Jan- uh, December, uh, January sixth. It's going to be wild." So, yeah. like, he's he's completely abandoned, you know, Plan One, where we're going to, you know, we're going to seize the voting machines, and now we're on to the next thing, which is we're going to put pressure on Pence and, and Congress on January. It, they never had a developed plan to do anything, right? And they were completely incompetent. So, yes, it was terrible, but the idea that these morons were actually going to, like, overthrow the government of the United States is ridiculous. And I can't stand it when people like – and I like Liz Cheney. I've known her for a number of years. But it really bothers me that people who like to talk about democracy 
and the Constitution, our, our sacred Constitution, they don't have any respect for how strong the Constitution is. The Constitution was the hero of the day on, on January 6th. There was never a chance that it was going to be shredded. Well, Andy, Andy, to be fair, I mean, if you go back to some of the Federalist Papers, you will find that the founders were talking about whether or not somebody who enters the House with uh, face paint and a horned helmet should actually then be given the entire government. <laughs> so it's possible that they're hoping that the originalists would, 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 would glom onto this and say, well, the man's got a point. I mean, he did get there, so I guess he gets the gavel well, and the nuclear well, codes. See, no, I know, it was ridiculous, all these yachts. I want to push back on one thing here. Hi, Andy. Hi, Charlie. I agree with you entirely that the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez line that we came two minutes, seven minutes away from losing the country or handing Congress over or to having Trump installed for a second term despite having lost the election and all of that is absolute nonsense. And I agree entirely that the idea that this riot represented anything other than a riot uh, is ridiculous. It wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a coup. It was unable, clearly, to achieve what it wanted to achieve. There is no mechanism. You can't draw a line between two uh, things and, and say QED. But I do think it's reasonable to say that Trump tried to stage a coup. Yeah. Yeah. Because Trump did something that we as constitutional originalists have seen wreak havoc when successful in our system. He tried to redefine terms that are ambiguous. He tried to rewrite the 12th Amendment so that it said that Mike Pence was elections dictator and could ex nihilo decide who was the next president. He tried to rewrite the Electoral Count Act and have it confer powers where they don't exist. And I never for a moment thought he was going to do that precisely because the Constitution is strong, as you say, in a way that the critics do not accept. But sometimes that has worked. That's what Roe v. Wade was. We had that for 50 years. I don't think it's unfair to say he tried, is it, even if he was never likely to succeed? No, you know, I, I think what you say, which is right, reminds me of every single conspiracy case yeah. I was ever in, in which judges instruct the jury at the end of the case that a conspiracy doesn't need to be successful or even have prospect of success in order to be a conspiracy in order for the people who committed it to be culpable and and punished which is why you make conspiracy which is the agreement to commit the crime a separate offense from from the crime itself because that's that's culpable and i think exactly along these lines charlie that he should have been impeached if they had done a competent job of uh, investigating and pleading articles of impeachment, he would have been impeached or at least it should have been impeached. So I'm not making a case. And I, I'm glad you point this out because I don't want to be understood as making a case that what he did doesn't demonstrate that his unfitness for office and that he should not only have been condemned for that, but that they should have additionally found that he's disqualified from seeking office in the in the future. And the fact that they didn't do that, uh, I think the Democrats decided because it was the end of Trump's term 
and they were running out of time and it was only going to be in office for two more weeks. So why not use this opportunity as a, you know, a political attack on Trump supporters rather than a serious impeachment attempt. It should have been an impeachment. In fact, I, I've, I've said again and again, I think the January 6th committee in the House is an attempt to do the, the impeachment they should have done uh, back in January 2017. Um, but all that said, yes, I mean, I think what he did is, is condemnable. It shows his unfitness, but we don't we can we can believe both things are true. We can believe it's condemnable and he's unfit and right. at the same time uh, that it didn't have any chance of success. Can I change the subject briefly now that I have you? Um, uh, uh, you're my uh, legal advisor here. Um, in, a, in, a, in a legally binding sense as well, whatever you say. <laughs> in a legally binding sense, yeah. <laughs> as a friend of my, my friend Adam Friedman, who's a great, uh, uh, was a commentator for a long time, a great author and a lawyer, says like, well, I, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. And that's a big distinction. Um, uh, so uh, just to, t- just, I, I know January 6th seems to be the, the issue, but I, I am in New York City. Uh, which is, uh, as you know, beset by uh, ambulatory psychotics, homeless people wandering around. And the argument has always been, well, if only we could scoop them up, put them someplace uh, safe for them, uh, uh, we should, we, we, we would do that, but we can't, uh, thanks to, uh, you know, civil liberties. And so Giuliani, when he's married, to a bunch of little kind of uh, interesting uh, loop workarounds on that. Um, but today or yesterday, uh, the New York City mayor's office suggested that they were looking for ways to uh, to do this um, within sort of the the loopholes that already exist. Can, can this be done? I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm asking you a very specific question about my block, Andy. Can it? Can't you legally say to these people, the, the, the bunch of psychotics who may not have committed a crime yet, look, you got to go somewhere, and we got to you know get you some medication. Is that possible, or is that illegal? It's possible. But they've made it much more difficult than it was 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about New York City now, I, I like to point out to people that when I uh, back in the in the bad old days, when I was growing up in the Bronx and then, uh, you know, that's the 60s and 70s when I became a, a prosecutor in the 80s. By 1990, 1991, we had. 2,260 homicides in New York, the -hmm. city. Now we're worried that we had, you know, murders are up. We had 488 last year, you know, which is up from like 270 or something that we had in about uh, 2017. So the point is things are not as bad crime-wise as they were 30 years ago. It could get a lot worse and it could happen quick. But I think, Rob, where it is worse is... There's much more mental illness um, and disturbed people who are uh, walking the streets than there were in the bad old days of crime. So in some ways, it seems um, it seems more random. Um, you know, we had a lot it, when we had a lot of crime, I think, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, most of it was like, you know, standard crime. And a lot of it was gang crime. Uh, and a lot of what mm-hmm. people were very upset about was, um, you know, particularly how it was being fueled by crack and and uh, that sort of stuff. Um, but you didn't have this this sort of um, deluge of people being thrown on the subway tracks by people who were just like mentally disturbed. Right. Um, right. Right. So the the reason that you have that now, even though crime is 
generally speaking, much lower than it was, is they've made it very difficult from a civil liberties perspective to give people the treatment that they need. But that said, it can still be done. You can civilly commit people. And as long as you can satisfy a court that you're doing it for you know, valid reasons and that the person uh, is non compos mentis and needs help, yes, it can be done. It's just that it's become uh, on the left they're the ones who push for this or, you know, the, this system that we now have, they're the ones who push for it right. for decades and they don't want to say it, it's, it's proven to be a complete failure. It's extraordinary, really. Uh, and when you consider it, you see now you can, you're just nothing more than a click away in the internet of seeing interminable numbers of videos of people just having psychotic reactions or nodding off in public or streets that are going, given over to tents completely the, the abandonment of areas to the dissolute the incompetent and the people who are not suffering from some organic version of mental illness but have driven themselves mad by the ingestment of drug ingesting of drugs you would think that there would be a a change in the in the in the hearts and the minds of the people who have pushed for this deinstitutionalization but you don't just as in the cities that are now beset by all manner of petty crime because we have either a decided we're not going to enforce quality of life issues because of disparate impact, or B, we have decided that we're going to decriminalize robbing, stealing from businesses after a certain level because of disparate impact. You would think that the people pushing for these would see the results and, and adjust themselves accordingly, but they don't. So there's no hope whatsoever that the people in charge of these major cities are going to do the things that are necessary to make them livable again. Well, you know, James, there's, let's talk about two different places, right? Two different reactions. You have San Francisco, where they mm -hmm. finally got fed up and they removed Chisa Boudin. Right. And then you have Philadelphia, where Larry Krasner got reelected by, what, 40 points, was it? Mm -hmm. um, now mm -hmm. he's been impeached. But, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, worth pointing out that the legislature that impeached him is a statewide legislature, whereas the people of Philadelphia, where he has jurisdiction, reelected him by, you know, uh, scores right. of, of points. So I, I don't know what to make of it, except that, you know, I think that unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of ruin in the country. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's the reason that you could have 2,262 homicides before people throw up their hands and, and say enough. And obviously not everybody is doing it on the same pace. I think that, you know, the, the, the high point of, uh, progressive prosecutors and all the intent, the attendments of that, that, that whole bag uh, entails, you know, I think it's past its high point, whether that means it's collapsed. I don't think it's collapsed. I think, uh, you know, I think we're in for uh, a lot of pain before people get sensible. It took, you know, look, we had record crime just in New York, but across the country, we had record crime from the late 1960s until the until the early 1990s when people finally said enough. And at any point along that 30 year time span, you could you could uh, you know pick a pick a year, and it would be still much worse than what we have now crime wise. And yet it took an accumulation of 30 years for people to finally say you know we have to reverse this. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could sit here and say. I, I have a real sense that that's about to completely turn around, but I don't. Yeah. Well, there are the people who regard it as the, the, the existence of the homelessness and the crime and the rest of it as a useful 
proof right. of the failure right. of the systemic failure of this entire system. So it's got to be done away with written branch. Then there are the people who are disinclined to do anything about it because that would be being a Republican. They don't want to be that. I just think the people who think, oh, no, I don't I, I want to publicly prof- profess my virtue and throw more money at these problems instead of changing anything systemically. I wish that they would say that in public. But when they get in the booth, vote like Genghis Khan, just vote like Genghis Khan. That's all. I get. <laughs> Andy, we got to. And I'm and I said Genghis, not Genghis, Genghis Khan. I'm old school. The guy who went to Peking, that guy. That guy. Right. I have to interrupt you for a second because something just occurred to me. You know what? Winter. It's winter, right? What is winter? Winter is chaos in your pants. It is. Think about it. Because you're in a stuffy room and you're overheating one second and then you're outside and you're freezing the next. Ah. Oh. Chaos in your pants is what the winner is. Well, to be ready for anything, you need underwear that can handle everything. It's time for Tommy John underwear. In Tommy John underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. Name a problem with other underwear and Tommy John's solved it. Tommy John's breathable, lightweight fabric has four times the stretch of competing brands, and it comes with a no-wedgie guarantee thanks to a non-rolling waistband and legs that never ride up. Plus, they feature a horizontal quick-dry fly. Hammock pouch supports, well, you know, you know, awkward swing and slap, and gave everybody something to be grateful for with that. Yes, well, with over 18 million pairs sold, people love Tommy John underwear. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. I'm one of them. Listen, the uh, winter here in Minnesota is brutal, and I have to go outside and I have to put up some lights tomorrow. It's going to be 17 above for the high. I should have done it before, but if I'd done it before, I would have been wearing my Tommy Johns and I would have been comfortable. I'm going to be wearing my Tommy Johns when I do it now, and it's going to be colder and I'll still be comfortable. And if I don't like it, well, you know what? Everything's back to Tommy Johns. Best pair you'll ever wear or is free. Guarantee. So go to TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet right now, this very moment, for 20% off your first order. 20% off at TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. See the site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. You know what would be a fun exercise is to look through the New York Times and the Washington Post and see if any of the people who have hysterically written that if Elon Musk is allowed to run Twitter as he sees fit, people will die, have said anything about mm-hmm. the governance of New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and so forth. I bet they haven't. No, no, because people can only be killed by Twitter. Uh, Andy, it's great as ever to talk to you. Um, we'll <laughs> see you down the road again. And because uh, we always know this guy is going to be law and cases and stuff. And you're our law and cases and stuff guy. Well, you and you, you know, you can fight it out in the ante room to see who gets uh, dragon rights there. But but thank you for joining us. Andy McCarthy, ladies and gentlemen. Great to be with you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Andy. Thanks. You know, when you walk down some of these streets, you think, oh, is my life in danger? Am I in danger? Maybe you are. You never know when there's going to be a stray bullet. You never know when there's going to be a needle in the street that's going to give you something. That's why it's kind of important to have life insurance, isn't it? Now, you all hope you never need it, but mortgage payments, childcare, other expenses, they don't disappear when you're gone. No, alas. Well, life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. And since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, gee, I wonder why, now is the time to buy it. Now. And how? Well, policy genius. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential. Just a few clicks, you'll find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 
$17 per month for $500,000 of coverage, 17 bucks a month, half a million coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams as well. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over the other so you can trust their guidance and no added fees. Your personal info, it's private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net, and you deserve a smarter way to find it and buy it. So head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. And we thank Policy Genius for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And speaking of Ricochet... Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Rob Long with a panoply of, uh, of it authors. is a panoply. It's a more than comes in. It's more than the usual. I just uh, I uh, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember one of these days. I uh, had a lovely conversation with our own Dave Carter. So David Carter's podcast is back oh, up. Oh right, uh, it's up. It's awaiting all the ears. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Um, and uh, it's a, a slightly lighter look. I mean, I think um, I'm. Dave's a polymath and knows a lot about everything. So it's, it's a really fun conversation and he's a lot of fun. So, um, he's got uh, a couple of them up there. So, uh, if you got, and, and they're, and they're only 30 minutes. So it's like, we're not asking, you know, he's wisely, I think, um, a, a wise content creator, put it that way. And a lot of fun and an, uh, OG ricochet, um, contributor. So we'll check it out. Um, oh, you really are on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, he's OG. Um, uh, but of course, the thing about Ricochet is we're more than just the avatars and our uh, podcast heroes. We we know this because our people do unplug every now and then from TikTok Matrix and meet in the real world. Uh, for instance, uh, our own um, Mr. Cook just got back from the NR Cruise, where he dined with uh, Ricochet's finest representatives. How was that? Was that fun? It absolutely was. I didn't get to dine with everyone because the night there was a Ricochet meetup, I had the National Review staff meetup. But I did get to dine it individually with various Ricochet members. Which oh, that's great. That's great. Um, James, of course, we, uh, James and I had uh, we, we gathered earlier this year and on a rainy April day, but it was a lot of fun. Um, a little pub crawling, which I'd like to do again soon. Oh, it's great fun. I got co- I, I got I got I got COVID, and it was I I do it again. It's worth it. It's absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I got COVID and do it again. Um, so look, that's why we think you should join Ricochet. We're not just on the web. We are IRL. We matter in the old fashioned way in real life. So when you join Ricochet, you have an invitation to some of our exclusive members only meetups. And there are some coming down the pike. Here they are. Uh, Rush Babe and, and Ray Kajawa are hosting their holiday open house and chili party on December 3rd. So that's actually tomorrow in Everett, Washington. Um, she, that's her handle name. It's not her preferred pronoun. She's great, as in she's great, is hosting an extravaganza near Pittsburgh on December 10 and 11. Susan Quinn is getting a gang together in Sarasota, Florida in January, which is uh, on the weekend of the 14th, which is a very, very good timing to be. If you're going to be in Sarasota, be in Sarasota in January. That's going to be nice. Um, And Quiet Pie has something in store in Vacaville, California on January 28th. Randy uh, Wevota is plotting a big meetup in New Orleans for French Quarter Fest. That is a uh, I'll be there. Like I do whatever I can to be there. Um, okay. So if these meetups aren't convenient for you or they are uh, out of reach or they're too far or whatever, um, no problem. All you got to do is join Ricochet and give us time and a place and Ricochet will come to you. That's what we do. We travel. So for details on our Ricochet meetups, go to ricochet.com events, or you can find the module in the sidebar on the site. But as always, 
um, we want you to join because we want to see you and we want to see you in the comments and we want to see you on the posts and we want to see you IRL. Good idea. Last before we go, gentlemen, last night I was watching football and I saw a very large man, nimble and strong, carrying the pigskin. And he was beset by three other gentlemen who were intent on not letting him pass. There was a great collision that I could hear practically from from where I was. I mean, the microphones picked up the, the crash of helmets, the grunts, the rest of it. And eventually they stopped him. And eventually this pile of flesh was disentangled and they shrugged their shoulders and went off to the next iteration of the same thing. I realize that this does not make me a very cosmopolitan man, because if I were a true citizen of the world, I should watch the sport in which grown men act mm-hmm. as if they had been go. lanced in, 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 you know, with, uh, you know, with some long, sharp pole because they brushed into somebody and their eyelash fluttered against their, against their skin or even their uniform. And that, of course, would be the, uh, the, the, the greatest game in the world, soccer. And here is Charles C.W. Cook, who has done a masterful job of impressing on us his absolute acclamation to American culture, to the fact that he is more Florida man than Florida man himself. But yet, he's going to ruin it all now, I think, with a defense of soccer. Or are you? Are you? I'd certainly defend soccer. I love soccer. I have two reasons <laughs> I had two reasons. I, I'm an OG soccer fan, IRL, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, All right. I think you you come by it honestly. To be fair, you're, you're not an American. We know that. Well, this is the first reason I love soccer is because I grew up watching soccer, and soccer in England is the sport. It is almost a religion. Who are you have... a supporter of? Well, my dad is from manchester and became a manchester united fan after the munich air disaster in the 1950s i didn't know they were playing the palestinians (laughs) and i inherited that which was quite fortunate because the 30 years before i became a manchester united fan they won nothing and then the minute i became a manchester united fan not because but perhaps in spite of my becoming a manchester united fan they became unbelievably successful uh, until about 2013, at which point it all collapsed. But I just have years and years and years of memories of watching soccer, both league soccer and international soccer with my dad and my uncle and my friends. So obviously I'm well steeped in this. But, and I wrote this in the piece I wrote about this, that's not really uh, the only reason, because I love American sports, as you say. Now, there are a lot of people who love soccer, and then they move to America, and then they say, American sports are stupid. And they say, why do the American football players wear Kevlar body armor? Well, because it's a brutal game. And they say baseball's boring. And it's not. I love baseball. I love football. In fact, I think football is the greatest sport in the world. I just also love soccer. And I see this a little bit like people who say, you know what? I used to like opera, and then I discovered blues. Why not both? I mean, this is the great thing about the world, and in fact, especially the modern world, and especially in America where there's no blackouts, I can, of a weekend, watch Premier League soccer or the World Cup, college football, the NFL, and baseball, if it's the right time of the year. That's a basketball in as well. I like all of them. I don't know why it has to be a competition. Because so, esta- because, because pouring scorn and contempt on soccer is, a, is, <laughs> is one of the things that I used. You'll never be one to, of us, to to, uh, to assert my uh, individuality and my character. That's why. Can, uh, can I share? I mean, I, I, I um a little. Mem- uh, when I was a kid, we lived in Holland, uh, 
And uh, we, I went to this international school. My brother was older. He went to a Dutch school. And so all my friends were English, or uh, as they would correct me, Welsh. But, but they were Please English, don't basically. conflate those two things. And uh, I know, I know. But, that's, but, you know, we're American. They're, they're, they're all England. Um, and, uh, and so when I was a kid, I was a Liverpool fan because my friends were all watching Liverpool. And oh. I was a huge Liverpool fan. Excuse me. Just let me finish my memory. It's a very sweet memory. <laughs> and... Um, and I loved going to the games, local games um, in Holland. They were great. And uh, um, and then I played it when I was a little kid. And then um, and that was that. And then the only thing I remember was like a year ago, I uh, was in Spain with my family and we were in Seville and we saw, we went to a soccer game and it was hugely, hugely fun. Um, and I loved the fact that Tunisia in the World Cup beat France because I know I have friends who are Tunisian. They just loved it. And that's the best thing about the World Cup is when, you know, the, <laughs> the former colonies take on their European uh, uh, oppressors and win on the field. Um, but I, I have zero interest in following it the rest of the year. It's really kind of, I'm a fair weather friend, a situational fan. Um, I have to actually care either about the countries involved, which get, gets is harder and harder to do, um, or have to be in, in, in place and somehow to experience the fun of watching a live soccer game. Um, and in that respect, it's a, it is a little like opera, Charles, for me, in the sense that I don't really search it out. Uh, and it's long and it's very noisy. And there seems to be wall to wall singing all the time. Um, but I, I uh, you know, every now and then you can, you know, uh, yeah, I'll go and I guess cheer for the fat lady. I think American football is opera, but that's a topic for another day. Well, the thing about most Wagnerian opera, Wagner operas rarely end in a tie. Yeah. Um, we have to go. And that was great fun. And I, we would like to thank you for um, what you've already done, which is, of course, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcast. And we'd like to thank you for going to Donors Trust and learning how you can catch up with our podcast. Tommy, John, how you can be comfortable. ExpressVPN and Policy Genius. What a great raft of sponsors that were happy to have us come to us at the end of the year and say, tell everybody about our stuff. They'll be better off for it. And we did, and you will be. So support them and you support us. And, of course, join Ricochet. Today, I think I've been saying this for 600 podcasts, maybe 578, whatever, but I'm going to say it again next week, and maybe you will have joined. Maybe you'll have found the member feed, and you'll be chatting all sorts of things about Rob and Peter and Charlie and me. Well, you know, no, we're there too, so we'll see what you do. And we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week. Next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.